Well, Amy Carmichael, one of my favorite missionaries to read about and study, she was a missionary to India, served there for, for 55 years until the end of her life. She once said this. She said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. So leave that on the screen there for just a few moments, guys, so we can read that through again or even write that down if you're taking notes. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. So the question is, is that true? Is that statement true? I I think so. I believe so. Uh, I'm going to assume here this morning that the the vast majority of you are here because you would say you love Jesus. Now, that's not everyone here. I'm I'm well aware of that. Some might be here, and and you're here today, you're searching. I'm I'm curious, but I would never say that I love Jesus, but I'm curious about what, what this is and what this is all about. There might be some here this morning that are really struggling with faith. Some here this morning that might be confused or have been wounded or they're bitter. And and my prayer for you in this moment is that that the love of Jesus that we see displayed through his life and through his death would would bring healing and hope to your soul. But, But many of us here this morning would say, I love Jesus, love Jesus. And we, and we gather here collectively as the church because, because of our collective belief and, in Jesus and our, our, our love for him. But, but the question is, how do you know, right? How do you know you love him? How, how do you know that the, the love that we maybe espouse with our, with our, with our, with our mouths, the, the, the words that maybe we even sing together, how do we know that those words are actually true? They're genuine in our, in our lives. It's, it's got to be more than just a saying, right? So does your life reflect the reality of what we say? So as Amy Carmichael says, again, you you cannot love without giving. Uh, So so the text before us this morning is contrasting two types of of people in the world. Now, one really represents all of humanity apart from the intervening grace of of God in our lives. It's it's comparing a, a life that sees Jesus as nothing more than a threat, Right? A threat that needs to be ignored, a threat that needs to be silenced, a threat that needs to be silenced or destroyed. A life that seeks control or power over their own lives and, and even over the lives of other people. A life that thinks that, that, that true joy, true meaning, through, true salvation, however it's defined in your heart, right, is found apart from Christ, not through Christ. So he's a, he's a threat to, to that. That's one person that's, that's characterized here. But the other person in the story that's, that's contrasted reveals a life that's found a superior treasure, the greatest joy in the universe in Christ alone. It's, it's a life that reveals what true love and devotion for Jesus actually looks like. It's a life that reveals what Jesus is, is after in those who would follow after him. It reveals where true lasting joy is actually found. And it's, it's not found through um, self-actualization. It's not found through self-love. But actually it's found, as we'll see, through self-denial. And see, that, that only when we deny ourselves, only when we submit to the, the lordship of Christ, only when we, we give all of ourselves to him do we actually truly find the life that we've been created for. See, Jesus is not after our religious piety. He's not after self-righteousness. In fact, it's our, it's our self-righteousness, the things that we think we do which inherit acceptance or salvation or, or whatever we put around that. It's actually our self-righteousness, our works, 
that we think set us free are actually the things that condemn us. It, it was Jonathan Edwards who once said that, that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. And, and so the more that we seek salvation, the more that we seek freedom or joy through ourselves, through works of self-righteousness, the more that we think we'll find our, our, our happiness through self-actualization, me defining who I am through self-love, if I would just love myself more and accept myself more the, more, the more we chase that rabbit hole, the more we actually find ourselves enslaved. Jesus says, listen, if you want to find yourself if you want to find life, which is what we're searching for, then you need to lose yourself, self-denial. This is what we see Jesus modeling for us in his own life. Jesus became poor. Why? So we could become rich. He became nothing. Why? So that we could, through him, become something. He gave up his life so we could, through faith in Christ, receive eternal life. Right? This is the love of Jesus. This is the love Jesus has shown for us. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. So, so since that's true, and since Jesus then for the greater joy that's laid before him willingly laid down his life on the cross for the souls of mankind, then disciples of Jesus, out of love for him, gladly sacrifice that which is precious to us to gain a superior treasure. In Mark 14, we see an example of that. We see an example of extravagant love from an unnamed woman, a, a woman who gives up something precious to her in order to gain something of far greater value. It's an example of, of the kind of love and devotion that Jesus is not only worthy of, but desirous of from those who would follow after him, come after him. And this unnamed woman in Mark's gospel is contrasted against a named man who couldn't have been more on the opposite side of the spectrum in his disdain and contempt for Jesus, and yet at the same time trying to mask it all with self-righteousness. That man's name is Judas Iscariot. Of the woman who re remains unnamed here in this text, and that's purposeful by Mark, Jesus says in verse 9 that what she has done, the act of love and devotion she displayed toward Jesus, Jesus says it's going to be told for ages. Told for ages that wherever the gospel is proclaimed around the globe, it's going to be told in memory of her. And what we'll see, though, next week in verse 21 is that of Judas, who is named, Jesus will say next week as we'll get to it, it would have been better if he would never have been born. See, Mark's aim here in this, this, this unit here of, of his gospel here is to contrast these two examples. And we see that because this, this act of selfless love and devotion for Jesus by this unnamed woman here, it most likely actually took place about six days before the Passover. And we know that because we can see a, a similar accounting of this in John chapter 12. So this story of this unnamed woman anointing Jesus with this costly oil, it's sandwiched between verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 between these events that took place a couple days before the Passover. Mark is, is comparing and contrasting these two extreme examples, one who sees Jesus as a threat, the one who sees Jesus as the object of their true desire and affection. And so, so he's drawing out this distinction between the two, and he's seeking to lead the reader here, us today, to see an example of what Jesus meant when he said in Mark 8, that in order to save your life, you need to lose it. That the, that the path of discipleship begins with self-denial. It begins with letting go of your life to gain that which, which can't be lost. 
To, to quote another uh, missionary, a well-known missionary, Jim Elliott, one of his famous quotes from his journals said this, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So if you've never heard that quote again, I'll say it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, his life. Well, I'm, I'm not going to hold on to my life, he's saying, because I can't keep it anyway. It's temporary. So I give right, what I cannot keep to gain what I can't lose, life forever in, in the presence of Christ. He is no fool who lives in that way. And so the question then is, is, is does our lives, do our lives reflect more of the attitude of, of the religious leaders uh, of Judas here in the text or, or more of the heart attitude of this unnamed woman? Maybe I'll preface it even this way. Name recognition, as we see from Mark here, is not always preferable. So let's jump in, right? So let's jump into the text. Verse 1 lays out the time frame, all right? Kind of places us where we are in the story as leading to the cross, right? So verse 1 lays out this time frame or the, a little bit of the backdrop of the story. We're, we're, we're heading toward Passover. It says now it's two days here before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We see that in verses 1 and 2. And this, was, this, this Passover, this feast here was a yearly feast. It was a yearly festival that the Jewish people celebrated to give thanks for God's deliverance from, from Egyptian enslavement. And so, so this festival, this feast here, traces is all the way back to Exodus when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, commanding Pharaoh to let God's people go, right? Set them free, right? The, the Jewish people were enslaved by the Egyptians. And so God is saying, I want my people set free. Moses, go and call on Pharaoh to let them go. So if you know the story, right, as through the Exodus, right, Pharaoh refused. And, and so what did God do? He, did, he showed these mighty works among them in the form of these, 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 these plagues to display his power. But even through these plagues, Pharaoh refused. His heart was hardened. I'm not letting go. I'm not submitting. I'm not doing what you're asking me to do. And so finally, this final uh, plague, this final uh, this event that would take place over the entire land there, God commanded the Israelites to cover the doorposts of their home with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. And that night, the Spirit of the Lord was going to pass over the homes. And any home, any home that did not have the blood on its doorpost covering their home, right? Any home that, that did not have that, all the first, firstborn within the home would have died. And this was the final moment. This was the final moment that, that, that Pharaoh relented. And he released God's people from enslavement because of the, the mass death that was seen throughout all of, all of Egypt there. And so this Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was, was being celebrated annually since that day. Now, now, here we are now a couple days away from the Passover, a couple days away from the Feast of Unleavened Bread here. Now, now, the timing of Jesus' death around this feast, like Jesus is going to be going to the cross in just a few days. So the timing of all this around this, this festival, this feast of thanksgiving and remembrance of God's deliverance of them from their enslavement is not by accident or, or coincidence in any stretch of the imagination. It is planned. It is intentional. It is part of God's design from before the foundation of the earth was even laid that this would take place. Right? When we say God's on his throne, God is on his throne. Jesus was not killed by accident. 
He saw it coming. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly laid down his life. And this timing that, that was happening right around Passover was to point them even more so to the greater sacrificial lamb who would die for the sins of all humanity. You see, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was always pointing outside of itself. It was always pointing outside to a, a final perfect sacrifice. Everything found its fulfillment in Jesus And so the lamb that was sacrificed and had its blood spread over the doorpost all the way back in Egypt pointed forward to the day when the perfect, spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, would have his blood shed. We just remembered it just a few moments ago as we drank that cup to remember the blood that was shed by Christ, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God as he hung on a cross so that God's judgment for our sin, our betrayal, our rejection of him would be passed over us and instead rest on Christ who paid the penalty. And so this is the time frame. This is where we are in the story. We're now days away from this pinnacle moment in the Christian faith that all of Jesus' life has been moving toward this climax, his death for the sins of humanity. And on this path toward the cross, he has been calling his disciples, calling those who would follow him, lay down your lives, take up your cross, just like I have, just like I will, and come follow me. But along the path toward the cross, he's also made a lot of enemies. In fact, apart from God's grace, we are all enemies of God. All right, apart from God's grace, you are not um, a, a believer because somehow you figured it out, because you were enlightened, because you were better than everyone else, and you figure what's wrong with all these fools? You can't figure out what I've figured. No, you were, I am apart from God's grace, an enemy of God. And without God's grace, and if not for God's grace, we would be running from him as fast as we possibly could. See, we're all enemies of God. See, the human heart naturally rejects the lordship of Jesus. And so what we see in these first few verses, and then again in verses 10 and 11, is, is a picture of our hearts. It's a picture of the human heart apart from the intervening grace of God at work in us to draw us to the Son, And so point number one is is simply this, as we walk through the text, is that Jesus is seen as a threat to our power and control. That's what we see in the first couple verses. That's what we see in the life of Judas. Jesus is a threat to our power and control. Isn't that what we see in the heart of the religious leaders? It it says in those first couple verses that they were were seeking, right? The the Greek word there is zeteo, right? It's meaning this, that they were desirous, almost almost frothing at the mouth, right? Drooling over, like, how can we scheme and investigate and figure out ways? It was like a single-minded pursuit. How do we destroy this guy? Like, nothing else mattered to them. How do we get this guy out of the picture? And I don't even want him out of the picture. I don't want him just somewhere else. He needs to be killed, Why? Because Jesus was seen as a threat to their power, their control over their lives and over the lives of others. What's Jesus say in Mark 8? If anyone would come after me, let him him deny himself and take up his cross and, and follow me. Now, for for majority of us in this room, like those are, yeah, man, yes, take up the cross, follow Christ. But those words are offensive words to the natural mind. Those words are offensive words to those who are outside of Christ. What are you talking about? Deny myself, right? What are you talking about? Take up my cross. Like, no, 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 no. I, I, need to, I need to invest more in myself. 
Right? The common message we hear today is if you want to find meaning and if you want to find fulfillment in your life, right? It's like what I just said a little bit ago. It's, no, it's through self-love. It's through self-actualization, right? I determine my destiny. I determine my identity, right? It's this individualistic mindset, right? Self is at the center of the universe and that every other human being only is placed here to serve you. That's like our mindset. It's default within us. Like, why when you're driving? Why, why road rage? What, like, like, think through the heart attitude of getting mad at someone who's just going a little bit slower than you'd like. Like, why do we, like, get on their tail, right? Get on their tail. Like, kind of rev the engine a little bit. Like, what, what's going on in our hearts in that moment? This person needs to get out of the way because where I need to go is more important than where you need to go. That's, that's what it is. That I know what I'm doing. This guy, this fool has no clue what they're doing. Get off the road, right? Like it's this idea of this individualistic, self-centered mindset. It's about us. Why is there anger sometimes that, that rages with your spouse or your kids or your friends? Why do we get irritable? <laughs> is not the root of all irritability this idea that someone else is doing something that you don't deem appropriate? Right? That, that's irritability, right? Like, and, and so we're all, it's hardwired within us. And so this fright, no self-denial, that, that's, it's offensive. But what's Jesus say? No, if you, if you want to find yourself, you, you need to lose yourself. You need to deny yourself, and you need to cling to, to, to my identity. Like, that's the message of the gospel. Don't, it's not about finding identity within yourself. It's, it's saying, no, my identity is in Christ. See, Jesus was a threat to the religious leader's power and control. Jesus was a, a threat to Judas's desire for, for wealth and for comfort and for security. Well, how, how do I know that? Well, because Judas went to the religious leaders in verses 10 11 to betray Jesus. Why? So that he could line his pockets with some more silver coins. In John 12, we see this, this story of this, this, uh, this woman's act of love. We see it displayed there and, and talked about in John 12. And we actually see that it was Judas who was the one that was upset that this woman had anointed Jesus with this oil instead of giving it to the poor. Now, before you think Judas was just trying to think of the poor, well, maybe he was just trying to do something good. No, listen to what John says of Judas's heart and why he even made this statement. In John 12, 5 and 6, it says, Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now, here's what John says. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. See, Judas didn't love Jesus. Judas didn't love the poor. He, he said anointing Jesus with this costly fragrance, he said, is a waste. This is a waste. He, didn't, he wasn't thinking about the poor. He loved money. He loved himself. And, and he sees this expensive fragrance, which he knows right away what it could go for on the market because he's a thief. And he was outraged that this would be used, that this would be wasted on Jesus rather than selling it so that he could take some off the top to make himself richer. That was the heart of Judas. Now, again, before we go casting stones, we need to recognize that, again, this is the natural state of the human heart. Apart from God's grace, we want nothing to do with God. And even now, we feel within our soul a desire to, to wander, right? What's, the, what's, the, what's that hymn say? Like, we're prone to, to wander, right? Lord, I, I feel it. Right? Like, I'm prone to leave the God I love. Well, why? Why wander? Because we're prone to believe that there's something better out there for us than God himself. 
That's what sin is. That's what sin is. Every, every time we fall into sin, we are believing this truth. We're believing this false truth. We're believing this, this lie that, that this, is, this is better for you than God. That's sin. It's us believing that there's something that will bring more joy to my heart and my soul than God himself. But praise God, through Christ, we've been given a new heart. We've been forgiven and we've been delivered from the power of sin so that by grace alone we can, through the power then of the Spirit, die to self as Jesus calls us to and pursue the superior treasure that's found in Christ. See, that's what Jesus is after. That's what he wants in his followers and it's seen in the sacrifice as we move forward in this unnamed woman. See, look at verse 3. It says that while they were at Bethany, in the house of Simon the, the leper, as he was Reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. And so the first point this morning is that Jesus is, is to the natural heart a, a, seen as a threat. But, but secondly, here we see, this, the, why, why do we sacrifice? Well, it's because Jesus is worthy of love and adoration displayed through costly sacrifice. So, so I asked a question at the very beginning this morning. Like, how do we know, like, we love Jesus? The, the, the question then could, could really be expanded for us to better understand the, the, the how do we know as we, as we explore other types of relationships that we have. Like, so how do I know I love my wife? How do I know I love my children? How do, how do you know that I love you as, as, as one of your pastors? I mean, saying it for sure is a, a good starting point. Right? So if I, I, I never told my wife I loved her, if I never told my kids I loved them, if you, the church, never heard from me, like this desire to say, I, I love you, like, like that's not a good place to be, but it's also we recognize that that's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. Like when we really, really boil it down, we know someone loves us when we see their sacrifice. Like my wife isn't going to be content for, for too long with only words of adoration said in her direction, but if, if my life is going a different direction, like my life and how I live and what I give up for her and what I spend my time doing is going to reveal to her whether the words that I'm saying actually have any meaning of truth behind them whatsoever. And so sacrifice, um, giving, is what gives actual meaning and weight to our words, this woman in Mark 14 takes this, this, this alabaster flask. It was just a type of stone. It was the way that it was, it was formed and built. But the only way that, that it could actually be uh, used on Jesus had to be broken. So she takes this alabaster flask, which is uh, containing this very costly ointment, Mark says. Again, we've already heard that's worth more than 300 uh, denarii, which is, which is about a, a year's worth of wage is what this costed. Uh, most likely, this flask here, this ointment, had been handed down to her from generations before her, and she gives it. She gives it up, something that was of, of great significance and precious to her. She uses it all to anoint Jesus. I mean, what, what's the picture here of love? Well, we see that love is costly. We, we, we see that love is, is to be genuine, that love is sacrificial, that love is all-consuming. That love doesn't give sparingly. It gives, gives generously. Like I said, she had to break this flask to get the ointment out. It wasn't that she just took a dab of it and put it on his, behind his ears, like what we do with perfume or cologne, right? Like, no, it was broken, and it was all used on him. That's love. It's not sparing, used sparingly. It's generous. So how do we know we love Jesus? How do we know God the Father loves us? Because God the Father gave. 
We heard this last week, didn't we, from John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In John 15, verse 13, we hear Jesus say himself, greater love has no one than this, than someone would lay down his life for his friends, right? Love is costly. Love sacrifices. Love gives. Jesus gave his life for ours. This woman here is giving what is most precious to her to gain something that is far more superior, far more superior treasure because she loved Jesus. Reminds me of, of the analogy Jesus uses in Mark 13 when he's trying to, to, to teach on what the kingdom of God is like. And he uses this analogy in Mark 13, 44, where he says, like, the kingdom of heaven, it's like, it's like a treasure that, that's hidden in a field, which a, which a man found and then covered up. And then in his joy, this man goes and he sells all of his possessions. He sells everything he owns so that he can go buy this field. Why? Because it contained a, a treasure of utmost importance, of significance, than anything that he owned earthly. See, everyone would have looked at this person like, what are you doing selling all your stuff? What are you doing getting rid of all this to go buy some field? Well, what did, what, why did the man do this? What, the man knew there was something in that field that was better than anything that he owned. See, that's what oftentimes it looks like for a Christian as we pursue Jesus. It's going to look strange to the world, but what do we say? We, no, we found a superior treasure. It's better than anything in this world. It's better than anything I can accumulate. It's better than my family and my job and my career. It's better than anything else. It's him. It's better than my comfort. That's what the love of God is. It draws us to because that's the love that God had toward us. So church, we have to ask ourselves, is our love for Jesus, is it costing us? Is it sacrificial? Is it giving? And I'm just not, not just talking about money here. It plays a, a part for sure, but, but it's so much more. This woman here was, was public in her adoration of Jesus. Uh, see, women in this culture wouldn't typically approach, approach men, but here she finds herself in this crowded room crossing all sorts of cultural barriers and obstacles, not caring one iota what everybody was saying or thinking of what she was doing. She wanted to be in the presence of Christ. A family heirloom of sorts was broken, used for Jesus gladly. A year's worth of wages she could have received from selling it. She gladly and with joy gives it all to Jesus. Do you think today this woman, who is in the presence of Christ himself, right, is in any sense of imagination regretting what she did? Ah, maybe I should have held on to that for just one more year. She's been in the glory of Christ. Like eternity has opened her eyes even more so than what she was knowing even in this moment of how beautiful Jesus is. And for all of eternity, she's seen like this is better. This is be He's worth it. Right? This is what's so countercultural. See, we get so tied down to the things of this world. We elevate them over Christ, and it's just not the same. Does our life reflect that? Does my life reflect a love for Jesus above all things? See, love is costly. Jesus calls us to find our rest and our identity in him through self-denial, through sacrifice. You know, I once read a, I read a story of this, uh, this Japanese um, seashore village. So this village located on the, on the seashore. And it was a story that happened a little over 100 years ago. But an earthquake um, uh, took place there and, and startled the villagers one, one evening. But 
uh, your earthquakes were pretty common in this area of the world, and so everyone soon just kind of went back to work once it settled down and went back to their activities. But above the village, there was this higher plain, and there was an old farmer who had his home up there and his farmland up there, and he was watching from his house over the sea. So he looked out at the sea, and, and, and he looks at the water, and he sees the water is kind of, it appears dark. It's acting strangely. He, he, he noticed that the, that the water is kind of moving against the wind. It begins to run away from the land. And so in that moment, this old man knew what that meant, right? A tsunami was approaching. And so he's trying to warn the people from, from, from above to, to, to get up to higher ground, but nobody's paying attention to him. Nobody's listening to him. Everybody's just ignoring him. And so, so he calls to his grandson who's nearby, and he tells him, bring me a torch. See, in the fields behind this, this man's house were all of his crops. The, he had this great, I mean, just great crop of rice. It was piled in stacks. It was all ready to go to the, the market. It was worth a fortune. And so the old man took this torch in his hand, and in a moment, he lit all the dry stalks into this massive blaze of fire. Down in the village, they saw the fire, and so bells began to ring in the temple, and everybody began to shout, fire. So, so they all, all the villagers ran away from the beach, away from the, from the sea, and they start to run up the cliff to come and help this old man to try and put out this fire. And as they were coming up to, to, to see where he was and what was going on to save him, as they reached him, this old farmer told them, stop, look back at the sea. And at the, as they turned around, they see this, this long, lean, dim line, a line that was thickening uh, the closer it got. That line was to see it was rising like this high wall and approaching very quickly. Then came the shock, right? It hit. The, the sea struck the shore with all this great weight, sent a shudder throughout the hills, tore their homes apart. It drew back, then would come back again roaring over and over and over again, destroying everything that was down there. Then it finally receded back into the sea. Um, on that plane, as those villagers watched this unfold, nobody said a word afterward. But then the old man steps up and says, gently, he said to them all, this is why I set fire to my rice. He stood among them now as, as, as the poor of the poorest because he lit up his wealth in a flame, but he saved over 400 lives by that sacrifice. You see, love for Jesus is going to cost. It's going to cost us something. But please hear me. It's only costing you things that don't really matter in the scope of eternity anyway. Like all we're giving up are things that won't last Like, what do we gain? Something that lasts for eternity, right? A superior treasure. You see, Jesus is a threat to those who want to retain power and control over their lives, but to those who deny themselves, they find life in Jesus. And why is that? Well, point number three, last one. It's because Jesus is the poor sufferer who has brought hope through sacrifice. Look at verses four and five. It says that that there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For his ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Well, we saw earlier that in John 12 that this was Judas who was starting the belly aching. But here we see in Mark that other disciples more than likely begin to kind of join in with their, their, their scolding of this, this woman. In doing so, they're demeaning not only the act of this woman, but they're, de- they're demeaning Jesus himself. I mean, they're just saying this is a waste. This is a waste. Now, this is just a quick sub-point, but, but I do think it's worth maybe exploring. Uh, the, the culture, for the most part, 
I gotta be really careful too, even how I say for the most part, but but and not everywhere, but maybe even here a little bit more in the in the West, is it's 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 okay with Christianity as long as it doesn't get too extreme. And, and here's what that means: meaning, uh, don't really share what you believe. Um, keep it private. Keep it in your home. Don't really live it out. But what you do behind closed doors, that's fine. That's so you take that out. Then it's, it's extreme. But but as long as you keep it private and quiet and kind of just live under the radar, okay, fine, do what you want. That's kind of the, the cultural perspective for the most part. But sadly, even many within the church today are, are beginning to abide by that philosophy. And that, that Christianity is nothing more, as, as I've put it before, a, a hobby or, or, a, or a convenient Christianity. But the, but the moment someone walks away, is from, even that we see from a stable career to plant a church, the moment someone moves out of comfortable suburbia to live in the inner city to serve the poor and the afflicted? I mean, I have someone I, I know here in town that, that moved out of a, a comfortable neighborhood here, here in Bloomington Normal to move into an apartment complex where many in the Indian community were living. They wanted to move there because they wanted to be in the, in the presence of them. They would be in the midst of them to care for them and serve that community because they had a heart for them. That was seen as wild and crazy. What are you doing? The, the moment John Bricker, who preached here a couple of weeks ago, steps out of an established church to move to a town he doesn't know well, to plant a church again from the ground up, is seen as, that's, that's crazy. Or a Paul Campbell, who moves his family from the comfort of ministry in Virginia to head out to Logan, Utah, to minister in a very desolate place, a place that he once told me, he's been told that this is where church plants go to die. See, story after story after story could be told of people who have made these, in our minds, quote-unquote radical, uh, unwise, or reckless decisions because there's now a risk to their, their safety, their well-being, their financial stability. See, the world looks at that and says, you guys are out of your mind. Sadly, even today, many within the church would look at that and say, like, that's not wise. But this is what Jesus calls us to, doesn't he? doesn't necessarily mean that we all move locations, but it does mean we live with the same radical, quote-unquote, heart motive to love our neighbor and see the gospel spread in, in such a way that people would say, wow, that, that, that seems reckless. No, we're not being reckless, but we're, we're saying there's something better to be gained than, than the things that this world says, this is what will make sense of your life. See, far too many today within the church have settled even for a convenient Christianity. So again, the question is, why live this way? Let's finish this point out in verse 6. So, so Jesus looks to them all and says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So why is Jesus worth a costly love? Well, it's because as we see, as he's heading to the cross, he's the ultimate sufferer. Because for our sake, Jesus became poor, so by his poverty, we might become rich. Because the, the great commandment is to first love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and then secondly, to love your neighbor as you do yourself. Simply put, if we, wanna, if we have love for God, then we will have also love for our neighbor. This woman here held nothing back. She gave all. And in her act of love, she even prophesied here of Jesus' impending death and burial. She anointed, he says, he, she's anointed my body for burial. Now, this is so interesting. There's so many, that's what I love about scripture. There's so many like little threads to pull on. It's why you can spend an eternity 
Like studying God's word and just always find something more. Like let's dig in this. Like, like he says, she's anointed my body for burial. You realize that this is the only moment. It's like this is how set in stone the, not only the death of Christ was, but also the resurrection. Like he's saying, this, this is going to be the only moment that she has to anoint my body for burial. Because guess what? I'm rising from the dead. We're going to get to this on Easter Sunday, Mark 16. That morning, these women are going to the tomb to do what? To anoint his body. Guess what? They can't do it. Why? He's not there. This is the only moment that, that his, his body, custom, uh, the custom of the day, the cultural of the day, like that he can be anointed for burial. Like there's so much even there in just the, the sovereignty of God over everything here. Just an amazing, amazing little truth there. But her act of love, he says, is going to be remembered wherever the gospel is proclaimed. Why is that? Because her act of love reflected Jesus' act of love on the cross. Jesus held nothing back. He gave it all. Same love Jesus demonstrated to us is now the same love we reflect back to him. This is a story of, of two individual beliefs of Jesus, right? An unnamed woman and, and Judas, right? In, in a story, Judas gives, gives up Jesus to gain earthly treasure. This woman gives up earthly treasure to gain Jesus. Oh, that we might resemble the love that this woman showed. But, but more often than not, we resemble oftentimes the heart of Judas. Thank God the love of Jesus is pure and constant. Thank God the cross covers my shame, covers my betrayal, covers my rebellion. Thank God the Spirit has been given to, to reveal the glory and the beauty of Jesus to us. Thank God the Spirit of God has been given to seal us until the day of redemption. You see, since Jesus, for the greater joy laid before him, willingly laid down his life on the cross for the souls of mankind, disciples of Jesus are called then to gladly sacrifice that which is most precious to them to gain a superior treasure. So what needs to be sacrificed in your life? What are you holding on to instead of Christ? Can I, can I implore you, seek the greater treasure. Let's pray.